Understanding Christianity. I am Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor of New Testament, Old Testament, theology, and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. In the last podcast, we dealt with a very controversial issue. We dealt with the issue of predestination or election, or why does God choose sinners for salvation? And I showed you many of the views that have been adopted by Christians throughout church history. And so for today, I also want to deal with another, not necessarily controversial issue, but an issue that needs to be talked about. And really how you understand this issue helps you understand a lot of other issues related to salvation, related to how God operates in His sovereignty, the human capacity capabilities or capacities, evangelism, missions, it stretches to a lot of different themes. So the question for today's podcast is, what is total depravity? When Christians use the term total depravity, what do we mean by that? And the the, the basic question we're asking is, just how sinful are human beings? Are we absolutely sinful? Are we totally sinful? Are we halfway sinful? What has happened to our mind and our will and our emotions as a result of what Adam and Eve did? How sinful are we truly? And does that affect our ability to choose for Christ? Does that affect our um, standing with God in relation to salvation? And so all of these issues are wrapped up in that question, what is total depravity? And we really need to start back at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, because that's where sin entered the world. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created a perfect world. He created everything and it was good. And He put Adam and Eve in the garden and they were united in a covenant marriage and they were naked, they weren't ashamed, and God had given them freedom to eat of any tree in the garden. But there was one prohibition. In Genesis 2 16, the Lord God commanded the man. This is the first time that God commands a human uh, in the Bible. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives them freedom. You're free to eat of every tree. There's absolute freedom. There's goodness. God is being gracious. God is giving them freedom to eat, but He gives one prohibition. 
There's one tree from which they cannot eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat of that, there is a consequence, and the consequence is that they would surely die. Well, the end of chapter 2 begin, or the end of chapter 2 says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then chapter 3 begins with, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In the Hebrew language, there's a play on words here where uh, two different words really kind of sound alike. They, they rhyme in the original language. And, and let me kind of say it in English to help you understand it a little better. Adam and Eve were nude. The serpent was shrewd. Yes, Adam and Eve were physically naked because they were in a covenant marriage and they were not ashamed, but also spiritually they were vulnerable to the attack of the devil. Satan, the adversary, in the form of a serpent who slithered into the garden. And the first words out of his mouth are this. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's actually a lie. And what Satan is doing is he is, from the very beginning, questioning God's word. He's putting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind as to the authority and validity of God's word. And he's basically saying God's not good. God has has withheld these freedoms from you. God is not being good. God can't be trusted. You can be like God. And so we know the rest of the story. Eve was tempted. She ate of the fruit, gave to her husband. They ate, both ate of the fruit. Their eyes were open and they sewed fig leaves together to make for themselves loincloths. Now, you may ask the question, well, why did they sew fig leaves? Well, they were exposed. They were naked. They, they felt immediately the guilt of their sin, the shame of their sin, and their first reaction was to hide themselves. So the, the only thing they can see there to do is to fashion for themselves fig leaves. And so this is the first attempt of, of what we would say man-made religion is. Humans are sinful, humans have guilt, and instead of trusting in Christ as the only one that can take away that guilt, humans have the propensity to begin to fashion things to cover up our guilt, and that's what Adam and Eve did from the very beginning. They fashioned um, loincloths out of fig leaves to cover their guilt, and then God kind of puts them on trial in verse 8 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hide from God because they know they're guilty. They know that they've sinned. They know that they've rebelled against God's word. And so their, their first reaction is to hide in shame. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, God is not lacking information here because God is all-knowing. It's not like God didn't know where Adam was because he was hiding behind some tree. There's a rhetorical device used here in the Hebrew poetry, the Hebrew language, where God is actually like a courtroom judge, and he's, He's bringing Adam and Eve out on trial, and He's asking these rhetorical questions as a way to expose their guilt, not because God needs the information. So God says, you know, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice that there's shame, there's guilt, and now there's fear. I was afraid. I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now comes blame. So not only is there guilt, not only is there shame, not only is there fear, but now there's blame. He's, he's basically blaming God. God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman and she made me do it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the devil. The devil made me do it. And so from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin, they bring guilt, they bring shame, they bring fear, they bring blame, they bring a curse of sin, spiritual death, into the world. Now, the question then becomes, okay, that's all fine and good, that experience happened to Adam and Eve, but how does that affect us? Well, Paul makes a very strong argument in Romans chapter 5 that what Adam and Eve, especially Adam, because he's the federal, what we call the federal representative of the human race, what Adam did in the garden has enormous consequences for every single human being born, except for Jesus. So let's go to Romans chapter 5 and let's see how Paul expounds upon what Adam did in the Garden of Eden by bringing sin into the world. It wasn't just an act that Adam did in isolation. It has ramifications for us today. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did sin come into the world? It came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Adam. And what did that death do? That death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam brought sin into the human race. And as a consequence, every single person is born under the curse of God as a sinner and eventually will experience spiritual death and physical death without, if Christ does not intervene. And then he goes on to talk about condemnation. He says in verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because of Adam's trespass. And, and when you think about trespassing, you know when you go to someone's property and it says no trespassing, what does that mean? You're not allowed on the property. If you cross the boundary, you could get shot or you could get in trouble or you're breaking the law by crossing a boundary. And oftentimes the Bible uses that to describe sin. You're crossing a boundary. What was the boundary God gave? God told Adam and Eve, you're free to eat of any tree, but the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. If you cross that boundary, you will surely die. And so that's why the Bible calls it a trespass. Adam trespassed. He crossed the boundary. And because he crossed the boundary, because he sinned, it led to condemnation. What's condemnation mean? Guilt. Guilt. All of us are born guilty in sin. All of us are born sinners. And so we've got to establish from the very beginning that every single human being is born a sinner. And we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's a nature it's part of who we are in a very fabric to the depth of our soul. We are born under God's wrath. We are born in guilt. We are born sinful. We've inherited 
what theologians call original sin. That is the sin that Adam perpetrated in the garden. And because he's the representative of the human race, when he sinned, because he's our representative, he plunged all of us into sin. And so all of us are born sinners. All of us are, are not born neutral. We're born what, what, what the Bible says in Adam, being spiritually dead. And this happens at conception. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the moment of conception, we have inherited the sin nature from Adam, and we're guilty, we're sinners, we're born under the curse of sin. And as a result of that, the Bible says we're desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're born with a desperately wicked heart. You often hear people say, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Go with what your heart says. Well, as a lost person without Jesus, without a new heart that the Holy Spirit gives you in regeneration, that's the worst advice you can give someone. Because if you're to follow your heart, just follow your heart, your heart's going to lie to you. Your heart's going to deceive you. Your heart is sick. You can't understand your heart. And it's going to lead you to all manner of sin if you just follow your heart because you're born that way. You're born with a desperately wicked heart. Ecclesiastes 9.3 This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. We have evil hearts. There's a fallacy, there's a teaching that's false in our culture that says humans are born basically good. We're basically born good. We just need to be taught or nurtured or have an environment that's going to help us to reach our potential. And it's a very humanistic view of reality where humans are elevated to this um, status of having unlimited potential and and the sky's the limit and and there's no such thing really as sin and that we're basically good. Well, you can just observe reality and realize that's not true. Put two toddlers in a room and give them only one toy and see if that theory goes out the window. Look at war. Look at genocide. Look at rape. Look at murder. Look at the way that people treat each other. Humans are not basically good. We, we have inherited sin from Adam, and we, our hearts are desperately sick. Jesus says this in John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People love darkness. Why? Because their hearts are deceitful. Now, at this point, most evangelical Christians are going to agree that humans are born sinful. This is the doctrine of total depravity meaning that we are born in a state of sin, we are born in a state of guilt, we are born in a state of being under God's curse of sin, we cannot save ourselves, we are born sinful. But the real question that people argue about or people have differences of opinion about is to what degree? To what degree are humans sinful? Is it total depravity or is it partial depravity? Are we spiritually sick in need of some spiritual medicine or are we spiritually dead in need of spiritual resurrection? 
You see, some people will argue that just because we're born sinful doesn't mean that we still don't have the ability to somehow use our free will to come to Christ. They'll say we're sinners, yes, but we still have the ability to cooperate with the wooing of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you and the Holy Spirit comes and presents the gospel uh, to, to your heart and your mind, you still retain the power of choice. You can choose to accept that. You can choose to reject that because after all, God has not taken away your choice. And so they'll say, yes, we're sinful. Yes, we are unable to save ourselves, but we're not totally unable to come to Christ. We still have the ability to do so because God has given us free will. So the real issue is, to what degree are we sinful? Do we have the ability to come or are we spiritually dead? That's really where the argument lies. And so the question we've got to wrestle with then is, okay, how does this, how, what does the Bible teach about this? Do we have the ability or are we spiritually dead and need resurrection? What did we look at in the last podcast? Let's just, let's just review what Jesus said in John 6. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Very clear statement there. No one can come. And as we looked at last podcast, it doesn't mean permission, but it means ability. No one has the inherent ability in and of himself or herself to come to Christ. You, you can't do it. You've, you've lost the ability to come. Unless God does something, God must draw you. God must bring you. And some people argue, well, even if God draws you, you can still resist that. So the real question is, has the fall of Adam and Eve affected not only your mind, your will, and your emotions, but has it affected your choice? Is your bondage, is your will in bondage? Are you just partially enslaved to sin? You have a sinful mind, you have a sinful heart, you have a sinful body, but the one thing that's not sinful or the one thing that still operates on its own is your will. You can still choose. Or is it a total depravity? Listen to what Jeremiah 13.23 says. Jeremiah is making a rhetorical argument here about sin. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Okay, what's the argument? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. Back in that day, and just like today, Ethiopians are Africans who have dark skin. Can they just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to change my skin color. I want to go from having black pigmentation to having um, tan pigmentation or white pigmentation or, or whatever pigmentation that's different. And the answer is no, you can't do that. Why can't an Ethiopian change the skin? Because he's born that way. It's part of his nature. He inherited that from his parents and he's born that way. The second argument that he gives is that can a leopard change his spots? An argument from the animal world. Can a leopard just wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to be spotted anymore. I want to be striped like a tiger. Or I want to have no spots like a cougar. No, a leopard can't change his spots because a leopard's born that way. He's inherited that. And so you maybe think, okay, well, what's the big deal? An Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin. Duh, we know that. A leopard can't change his spots. Duh, we, don't know. we, we know that. But listen to what the rest of the verse says. Can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? What's the argument? 
Can you all of a sudden begin to do good, choose good, do wisely, act righteously, who are accustomed to doing evil? And the answer is no. And, and why? Why can't you do good? And all you do is evil. Because just like the Ethiopian and just like the leopard, you're born that way. It's in your nature. You don't have the power to change yourself. It is part of who you are that you inherited from your parents who inherited it from their parents that go all the way back to Adam. We lack the power. We lack the ability to make this change happen. Now, let's look at some verses that teach very strongly the doctrine of total depravity and total inability. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. And listen to what Paul says. He's going to quote from the Psalms here. But Romans 3.10. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul makes a very universal statement here. He's not leaving anybody out. He's saying, nobody's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Well, understands what? Understands truth, understands the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have cognitive knowledge. That doesn't mean when somebody presents the facts of the gospel to you, you can't understand the facts. What it means is that you lack the capacity to spiritually do any good to bring yourself to Christ. You don't seek God. No one seeks God. Now, you may say, now, wait a minute. I've always heard that some people use the terminology, well, that, that person's a seeker. They're seeking God. Or maybe you've heard of churches that are seeker-sensitive or seeker-driven or seeker-targeted churches that try to create church to, to gear more towards lost people. And they, they fashion their worship services all geared around lost people and making sure that people don't feel offended and they take away any signs of, of, of religious symbols or things that would make people feel uncomfortable in church. And they're really geared towards making life comfortable in church for the seeker. Well, the Scripture here says no one seeks God. Well, let's make a caveat there. I do believe there are people that are seeking things. Spiritually, there are people out there that are seeking experiences. Whatever experience they're seeking, they may be seeking enlightenment. They may be seeking purpose, seeking a religious experience, seeking friends. They're seeking all these things to somehow give them meaning. But at their heart, they are not seeking God for who God is as their ultimate source of satisfaction, as the one who they want to glorify, the one whom they want to live for, the one they want to, to, to magnify. They may be seeking maybe some of the benefits that God may give them, or they may be seeking certain experiences, but at their core, humans aren't seeking God because at the core of our being, we hate God. We are God-hating rebels because our hearts are deceitful. We are wicked. We've inherited that from Adam, and so we don't seek God. We've turned aside, the Bible says. That means we've been perverted. We've, we've gone our own way. Really, that's what sin is. You go your own way. 
You don't have a desire to go God's way. You don't have a desire to go the Scripture's way. You go your own way. You become worthless. No, no one does good, not even one. And, and then it goes on to explain all these different ways that, that humans are sinful. And then at the very end, Paul says that the reason this happens is so that you put your hand over your mouth and you're held accountable before God. In other words, every single human is accountable before the living God of the universe. And to put your hand over your mouth means you can't protest. You can't, you can't uh, put your resume before God and say, look how good I am. Or if God chooses to punish you, you can't, you can't you know, protest and say, God, that's fair. You can't do that. All you can do is put your hand over your mouth and say, I can't say a word because I'm guilty. I'm accountable. I am under condemnation. I am guilty. I'm a guilty sinner. I'm helpless to save myself. I'm hopeless to save myself. And if left in this hopeless and helpless condition, I'm hell bound. I'm on my way to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And Paul makes it universal. No one is righteous. No, not one. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to give five descriptions of what a person without Jesus, without salvation, looks like. Now, how do we know that this is what a lost person looks like? Because Paul says, this is what you were. You, You were this, but God did something to you. So let's read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were, okay, speaking about their former life, not, not, this is not true of Christians, this is not true of those who've been saved, this is true of those who aren't Christians, meaning every person that's born who hasn't yet to trust Christ for salvation. You were dead in the trespasses and sins you once walked. Okay, so that's issue number one, dead. You're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead in the sense that you have a heart of stone. And it needs to be replaced with the heart of flesh. You are spiritually dead. Not sick, but dead. What does a dead person do? Can a dead person respond? If you were to go into a, a morgue and you were to go downstairs and, and go, this is kind of morbid, but go to the dead bodies that were being prepared for, um, to, you know, be put in the casket or whatever, and you, and you go uh, in there and you take a big, big pin, a big needle, and you stick it in the big toe of one of the corpses down there. Are they going to have a reflex to jump up? Are they going to respond? Are they going to say, ouch, don't poke me? No, they're not going to respond. Why are they not going to respond? Because they are dead. Dead people don't respond. Dead people don't come. Dead people don't do anything. That They're dead. In the same way, Paul says, you're spiritually dead. The same way that Lazarus was dead. If you remember back in John chapter 11, Lazarus had died. And he was in the tomb for three days, and Jesus waits before he goes and heals, heals, the, you know, heals him in the situation and calls him out of the grave. And so he goes there, and he goes to the, oh, the grave, and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And by the power of Jesus' call, a dead man comes out. Now, could Lazarus bring himself to life? Could Lazarus cause himself to come out? Could Lazarus will himself enough to, be un, to go from being dead to being alive? No. The only thing he could respond to was the powerful call of Jesus who had the power to raise him to spiritual life. And in the same way, we are spiritually dead. That's what Paul says here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And here's number two. Following the course of this world. Because of our sin nature, 
we follow this world, this world system, this world system of evil, this world system of chaos, this world that's set against God and His principles. We're just a product of this world. We, we go with what the world says. We go with the values of the world. We go with the world system. We, we don't know any different. We're, we swim in the stream of what the world's telling us to do because of our sin nature. Number three, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, number three, not only do we, are we spiritually dead. Number two, not only do we follow the course of this world, but number three, we follow Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we're enslaved to Satan. We, we follow Satan. We're in bondage to the, 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 the whims and the, and the wiles and the targeting and the, and the fiery darts of Satan. We're in his clutches. Number four, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Number four, we're enslaved to our flesh. We do what our flesh tells us to do, and our flesh is set against God. And so we follow our sinful desires. We follow our temptations. We, we, we can't say no to the temptations when they present themselves to us. And so we're, number one, spiritually dead without Jesus. Number two, follow the world. Number three, follow Satan. Number four, enslaved to our flesh. And then Paul rounds it out with number five. He says, You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. Now, what's a child of wrath? It means that you deserve God's punishment. You deserve God's justice. You deserve hell. And he says it's by nature. Why is it by nature? Because we were born that way. We were born with a nature that's already under condemnation. You're a child of wrath the moment that you're conceived. And Paul says, like the rest of mankind, he makes it universal again. Everybody's born this way. Every single person is born by nature a child of wrath. Going back to what we just looked at in Romans 3, no one seeks after God. No one understands. No one's good. No one's righteous. It's these universal statements about the depravity of humans and this is pretty depressing stuff when you think about it we're enslaved we're dead we're lost we follow satan we follow our flesh we're children of wrath we, we turn aside no one seeks good no one does good no one seeks after god colossians two thirteen. and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Paul uses the same terminology there, being dead. If you go in, down in Ephesians chapter, we've just been looking at, chapter 2, verse 4, after Paul has been giving this, this list of these five things that are true of every lost person, he starts out in, in verse 4 with, but God. But God. God has to do something to overcome that state of sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. God has to be the one to make you alive. Why? You can't make yourself alive. You can't bring yourself to spiritual life. You can't cause yourself to be resurrected. God has to do that. And how does God do that? By His grace, because, of he, because he loved us. He, he showered us with the richness of His mercy because of His great love with us. He caused us to be made alive. And so every single human is born spiritually dead and has to be made spiritually alive. No one is exempt from this. 
Now, let's go to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. We'll jump back to Romans. And Paul speaks of ability here. You know, a lot of Christians won't deny total depravity. They'll say, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you that. We're totally depraved. We are sinful. We can't save ourselves. But we still have the ability to come to Christ. We still have the ability to say no. We still have the ability to use our wills. We still have the ability to choose. Well, what does Romans 8, 7 through 9 say? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul here is talking about those that are in the flesh. In other words, he's talking about non-Christians. How do I know he's talking about non-Christians? Well, look at the next verse. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. He says, listen, there's two types of people. There are those who have the Spirit because they've been born again, and there are those who are in the flesh. And those who are in the flesh are lost people. And what's the description of these lost people? What well, says their minds are hostile to God. What does hostile mean? I mean, hostile means at war. They've declared an all-out war against God. They're at enmity with God. They're hostile against God. And it says there that they don't submit to God's law. What does it mean to submit to God's law? It means to do what's right, to follow Christ, to, to live according to the Scriptures. They don't do it. Why do they not do it? Is it because they don't want to? Is it because they don't have the desire to? Is it because they've been given the Scripture and they just have decided not to? What does the Bible say? Indeed, it cannot. Now, does that speak of permission or ability? Can a sinful person in the flesh who's hostile against God, it says he cannot submit to God's law. Why can he not do that? Or she cannot do that? Because by nature, he or she lacks the ability to please or come to Christ. And then notice again what Paul says in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot. It doesn't say they don't want to or they may not. It speaks again of ability. They cannot please God. So let's just ask a very fundamental question. What's the one thing that's the most pleasing to God? Coming to faith in Christ. Having faith in Christ. Trusting Christ for salvation. Would you not agree that that's one of the greatest things that pleases God is, is to have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ? But a lost person cannot do that. Why can they not do that? Why do they lack the ability? Well, remember what Jesus said. No one can come to me. No one has the ability to come to me. Why can no one come? Because as we've looked at these other scriptures, no one seeks God. No one understands. We're spiritually dead. They are dead in their trespasses. They're enslaved to the world. They're enslaved to their flesh. They're enslaved to Satan. They're children of wrath. They love darkness. They can't change their spots. They can't change the color of skin just like they, they can't stop sinning. They cannot it speaks of ability. It speaks of, really, inability. That those who are without Christ, lost people, unregenerate, cannot come to Christ on their own. They cannot. They lack the ability. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. What does it mean to be a slave to sin? It means you're in its bondage, meaning that it's, it's your identity. You, you can't get yourself out of it. 
So you can make a conclusion here from all these texts that because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, they brought sin into the world. And as a result, we have all inherited their condemnation, their guilt, their corruption, their, their blame, their shame, their fear, their sin. And it has rendered us from conception to be totally depraved and totally unable to please God, to come to Christ, to understand, to do anything positively toward coming to Christ or having faith in Christ, which puts us in a huge predicament which means that we are totally helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves. That's why we need regeneration. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and take out our heart of stone and put in our heart of flesh. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to come open our hearts as He did to Lydia. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to come make us alive, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to come and cause us to be born again, as Jesus says in John 3. So what's the definition of total depravity? Because humans are dead in sin, and enslaved and in bondage to sin, every part of our being has been affected by the fall, including our wills. This does not mean, some people say, well, total depravity means that we are as sinful as we could be. That's not what it means. You could be, always be more sinful than you are. It doesn't mean that everybody's walking around like a Saddam Hussein or a Hitler. It does mean that sin has radically corrupted your mind, your heart, and your will. It's gone to radically corrupted. Now, you know, we use the word radical. That's radical. Radical really comes from a Latin word, radix, which means root. So when we say radically corrupt or it's radically affected us, what we're, not, we're not making this word up like, oh, it's radical. We're saying it's gone to the root. It's gone to the very root of who you are. In other words, it's the core of who you are. You can't undo it. it. It's part and parcel of who you are that you've inherited from Adam. It goes to the very root, to your heart, to your mind, to your will, to your emotions, to your body. Everything about you to the core is sinful. And as a result, we're incapable of doing anything good or pleasing to God. And we cannot, in and of ourselves, choose positively for Christ. And that's where the rub comes, because people will say, now wait a minute, are you saying that we lack the ability to choose? Are you saying we don't have free will? I thought that we always had this thing called free will that God gave us because we're created in the image of God, and God's given us the power of choice, and because He's given us the power of choice, we can choose between two options, and we can choose to accept Christ, or we can choose not to accept Christ, and it's all up to us whether we choose to do so. And I would say, show me scripturally, where that can be true in relation to the doctrine of total depravity. If we're spiritually dead, if we are under condemnation, if no one seeks, if no one can submit to God, if no one can please God, and Jesus says, if no one can come to me, then the question becomes, well, well then, do we take those, those scriptures at face value and say, we can't then. We can't. We can't do that. In and of ourselves, we can't. And Jesus gives the caveat, unless the Father draws. Now, there's where the argument comes again. Those more Arminian or semi-Pelagian leaning would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit draws, and He works really hard at drawing, and He does the best that He can to draw, and He woos, and He convinces, and He convicts, but at the end of the day, you can still say no, because you still have the power, you still have the ability. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't have to overcome your deadness to bring you to new life because you're not really spiritually dead. You're just, you're sinful, yes, but you're not totally depraved and spiritually dead and totally unable to come to Christ. You still have the, the freedom or the ability or the free will to do that. I do believe in freedom. We, we as Calvinists just use it a different way. We do not believe in what would be called autonomous free will, where we have the freedom to do whatever we want. What we do believe is that we are free to choose based upon our nature and our desire. Nobody's denying that we make choices all day long. We are free to choose according to our nature and our desire. So let me just ask you a question. If all of these things are true that we've just looked at biblically, I mean, if you've accepted all these things true, that going all the way back to Adam and Eve and looking at all the scriptures we've just looked at, if you, if you buy into that those things are true, and that's who a lost person is, then let's just ask a very simple question. By their nature and by their desire, will they ever choose for Christ? Will, that be according to, will they choose according to their, their nature? And the question's no left to their nature, left to themselves in that state, they're never going to choose for Christ because it's not in their nature to do so. They make choices all day long according to their nature. They make choices all day long according to their desires. The problem is their desires and their natures cannot choose Christ unless Christ overcomes the deadness of that nature by causing them to be born again. So no sinful human being will ever choose positively for Christ left to themselves. It's not in their nature to do so. It's not in their desire to do so. They don't have the desire. They don't have the nature. They never will unless the Father draws them. And when He draws them, He infallibly brings them to faith if they're one of the elect. The Holy Spirit must cause them to be born again. The Holy Spirit must make them alive. The Holy Spirit must take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And once that happens, guess what happens? In the supernatural work of regeneration, now you've been given a new desire, a new heart, and a new nature. And that new nature, that new heart, that new desire now has the ability to choose for Christ. And so once the Holy Spirit overcomes the deadness and causes you to be born again, you've been given new affections, new desires, and new inclinations. And now you can choose because your will has been liberated. And then you, you freely, positively choose for Jesus. But you couldn't do that before because it wasn't in your nature to do so. Your nature had to be overcome. Your deadness had to be overcome. Your sin had to be overcome. And God does that in regeneration. Regeneration just means being born again. When, when the Holy Spirit comes to you at a point in time and invades your heart spiritually by causing you to be made alive or to be born again or to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, He liberates or He frees your will. Your will was in bondage before. Your will was enslaved before. And now with a new will... You have the ability now, the supernatural freedom because of the Holy Spirit to choose. Now here's a big debate, another can of worms that has divided Christians for centuries. It's kind of the old argument, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Here's the question. What comes first? Does regeneration come first or does faith come first? Or let me ask it another way. 
Does the Holy Spirit cause us to be born again? And then as a result of being born again, we now can have faith in Christ. Or do we have faith in Christ? And once we have faith in Christ, that triggers the ability to be born again. What causes what? Well, obviously, I hold to the Calvinistic viewpoint that says that regeneration comes first. Why must regeneration come first? Because all these verses we've looked at says that if God doesn't act first, nobody's ever going to do it. Nobody's ever going to come to Christ. You're, You're in bondage. And so your will, your bondage has to be overcome. And that's what supernatural regeneration does. That's what the effectual call does. The Holy Spirit overcomes that deadness. He causes you to be born again. He he takes out your heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh. He Just like Lazarus, He calls you out of deadness. And once that happens instantaneously, you're freed. And then you have faith. The problem with putting faith first is that assumes that you still have the inheritability to do it without regeneration. And so the question that we've got to ask is, how does this affect evangelism? How does this affect the real world? How how does this affect the way that you you deal with with people on a daily basis? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can go to think about this, but um, one of the things I think is important is that as a Christian, I mean, you don't want to dwell on this all the time, but you really need to think about the state that God saved you out of. It's sometimes healthy to think about where God has delivered you from and the exact state of sinfulness and to have a true understanding of total depravity that God saved you out of that. And as He saved you out of that, you're no longer, that's no longer you anymore. That's not your identity. You don't have to live that way. You're no longer in bondage. And so when you focus on the gospel of how God has delivered you from that, it gives you confidence in the gospel to live for Christ knowing that He's saved you from that. In evangelism, when you're talking to lost people, when you have a lost friend or family member or you go on a mission trip or whatever, you have to really realize that the person you're talking to is in that spiritual state. They really are in that spiritual state. And you can't do anything about it. You can't take them out of that spiritual state. You can't talk them out of it. You can't persuade them out of it. You can't do anything supernatural. The only thing you can do, the one thing you can do is to, is to boldly and clearly present the gospel. That's your responsibility. That's the one thing you you have a responsibility to do, to clearly and boldly proclaim the gospel and answer their questions and befriend them and talk to them. But at the end of the day, you can't cause them to be born again. You can't overcome their deadness. You can't do a work in their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so you need to realize that when we go out and do evangelism or when you talk to lost people or when you do mission trips or when you're witnessing to a friend or or you're having gospel conversations or or you're dealing with people that that are skeptics, they are lost. They are blinded. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says what's happening. When you're you're talking to a lost person, they're blinded to who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, he's talking about unbelievers. The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So what's the, what's the devil doing to lost people? He's blinding their minds, blinding their eyes from what? Seeing the glory of who Christ is. So they have spiritual blinders on their eyes because of their sin. Every single lost person that you deal with is walking around with spiritual blinders. They can't see Jesus for who He truly is. But notice what Paul says in the next verse. 
For what we proclaim or what we preach or what we share is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What does Paul do? Paul says, you know what? I know that everybody I'm talking to that's lost is blind. They are blind. They are dead. They are lost. They are guilty. No one seeks. I know this. I've written half of the New Testament. I I know this theology, Paul's saying. But what's the one thing I do to these people that are seemingly blind and, and not responsive? I preach Jesus Christ is Lord. I preach the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. I tell the gospel. I announce the gospel. I talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I talk about the need to repent and believe in Christ. I spend time talking about sin. I talk about repentance. I talk about lordship. I preach Jesus. That's the one thing I can control, Paul says. I I preach Christ. And then what happens when you preach Christ? Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't, depending on how God works. Verse 6, For God... Who said, let light shine out of darkness, going back to creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There will be those times where God in His sovereign purposes, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will shine the light in the heart of an unbeliever. Just like in creation where God said, let there be light, God does a new creation in that center where He births faith. He gives them a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. He takes the blinders off their eyes. He causes them to be born again. And then at that moment, they see the glory of who Christ is because He's been preached and the Holy Spirit has convicted and done the work of supernatural regeneration and that person comes to faith in Christ. And that only happens for the elect. And again, we don't know who the elect are. So we preach Christ to everybody, knowing that some will reject, some will accept. But it's not in our ability to somehow arm twist or manipulate or do sales techniques or do all types of crazy gimmicks to get people to make a decision. We often talk about we need to get people to to decide for Christ. We need to get people to decide for Christ. Well, that terminology is not really biblical. No one can decide for Christ because everybody's lost. They're dead. They're incapable of, quote, unquote, deciding for Christ. What do we do? Well, we do what the apostles did. We command all people everywhere to repent and believe by sharing the gospel. You preach Christ, you preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then you preach repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And when you preach that, the Holy Spirit may see fit to regenerate those who you're talking to in His sovereign power, and they come to faith in Christ. Our friend Artaxerdia, who's preached in our church and um, we've done some things with him over the years. Uh, a wonderful man of God and preacher has used this illustration before. It's his, so I'm borrowing it. He says, sometimes we treat the gospel as if it's an invitation. We're just going to invite people to, to believe in Jesus. And he says, the problem is with an invitation, you can politely decline an invitation. You know, if, if I get an invitation in the mail to a birthday party or, or to a graduation party or to a dinner party, no harm, no foul, I can politely you know, decline it. I, I, cannot, I can RSVP and say, you know what, my wife Dawn and I have other plans. We're not able to make it. We're going to politely decline the invitation. Thanks for inviting us, but we're saying no. He says, what happens if you get a jury summons in the mail and it has your name on it and you're supposed to show up at court at such and such a date at such and such time? Do you have the option of whether you're going to say no? Well, you can say no, but you'd be in contempt of court. When you receive a summons, you have to respond. It's a command. And to not respond is to defy 
the authorities. And he says in the same way, the gospel is a command. It's a summons to repent and believe. And so what we're doing in evangelism is we're commanding people, we're urging people, we're telling people, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for sinners. He's risen again gloriously from the grave. He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as absolute Lord and God. And He commands as rightful King of the universe, all people everywhere who are under sin, who are under wrath, who are under guilt, who are helpless and hopeless and hellbound. He commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn from your sin, to hate your sin, to, forget, to, to forsake your sin, and to trust in Him alone, to find Him to be a satisfactory Savior, to bow your knee to Him, to submit to the Lordship of Christ alone, to receive Him by faith. And the promise is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and have their sins forgiven and have eternal life. That's our responsibility to proclaim that message. And it's the Holy Spirit Spirit's responsibility to, to regenerate dead hearts. And so you can go forward with the confidence, like I said last week in the gospel, that when you're faithful to a clear proclamation and a bold proclamation of the gospel, when you're faithful to that, then you can have the confidence that the Holy Spirit's going to work and that God's going to call out His elect and there's going to be regeneration. Not every time. And it may take multiple times of you sharing. God is sovereign in that. The one thing you can control again is is your, ma- your message, your mouth, what comes out of your mouth. And so the more you sow and the more you share and the more you tell and the more you witness and the more you invest, the more opportunities you have to see God do a work in the life of those that you're witnessing to. So total depravity, total inability, this whole idea that humans are sinful because of Adam and Eve. And the greatest need that we have is Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, the fact that only He can liberate us from our sin. Only He can give us new life. Only He is the one that can satisfy our souls and forgive our sins and take away the guilt, take away the shame, take away the condemnation and deliver us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of His wonderful light. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you have a relationship with Jesus. If not, everything that I've said up to this point is true of you. And if you die in your sins, you will experience an eternity, an eternal conscious torment in hell, away from the presence of God and Christ as your Savior. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit, then what I've talked about all along, I'm urging you to do. I'm telling you, repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And find in Him a perfect Savior that can save you and forgive you and cleanse you and give you a new heart and give you eternal life. Would you do that today? The Bible says today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm glad that you've chosen to listen to this podcast. Uh, If you have any questions, you can always email me. You can visit our website at seancole.net. That's S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E.net. You can email me there. You can find more sermon resources and other resources as well. We're thankful that you're listening to our podcast. Have a great day wherever you are and wherever you happen to be. Maybe you're, um, you're out jogging or maybe you're driving in your car or sitting at your desk or who knows where you are or what part of the country you're from. I'm just glad you're listening and God bless you and have a great day.